Acts 13, 40 through 46. If we get that far, let me broadcast. There we go. And Eric, why don't you begin us with prayer? Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your, your goodness and your kindness to us, Lord. We thank you for your means of grace that you've promised that you would conform us more to the image of your Son through your word. And we do pray now as we look at the book of Acts, you would help us to think more like you. We pray for teacher Bob, and we pray that you would help us to understand these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, amen. Today we have a citation that Paul gave from the Old Testament. And Paul applies that to the current situation and makes a prophetic warning about why it was necessary for them to pay attention to the gospel of Christ, which Paul has been preaching, as you know, if you've been here. The gospel was presented in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. So let me read verses 40, 41. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Then he quotes Habakkuk 1.5. Behold, you scoffers, marvel and perish, for I'm accomplishing a work in your day, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Unquote. And so here is an opportunity for us to learn how the Old Testament was used by the early Christians to call their Jewish brothers to faith and to repentance. And the issue in the days of Habakkuk was whether they would listen to God's ordained messengers that he sent to warn them about judgment. That's the context. And I'll go ahead and read some more here. Verse 4, which introduced verse 5, which was cited by Paul, says, (coughs) Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, well, actually, I have that as 2-4. Have I got 2-4? Eric, could you look up Habakkuk for me? Yeah. I don't have my Bible open to it. Yeah. And read that into context and explain what's going on. Yeah, let me read here. You got it? Okay. Um, do you want to read? Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe it if you were told. And then uh, there was a warning about judgment. Now both in, in, the, in Paul's statement, take heed, in the Greek that is imperative. That means it's an urgent command from God. And behold is also in the imperative, which means look, or pay attention, or beware. So there's a lesson to be learned, and they need to learn it. And so I, what I went ahead and did 
because the scholars were telling me that Paul is citing Habakkuk 1.5 from the Septuagint, which shorthand is LXX in the commentaries. And I actually printed out the Greek from Acts 13.40 and the Greek from the Old Testament to confirm that Paul was citing this and that that was the Bible they were actually using, at least in that synagogue, or he was citing. And now some people try to dispute that, but I, I just don't think they have much to stand on. Yes, uh, Eric, or uh, Brian. Is the uh, work which you will never believe spoken of here in Acts and in Habakkuk, is that the, whole, is that the all-encompassing person and work of Christ, or is it something more specific? Well, I think there's, uh, frankly, I think there is a, how do we describe that, Eric? It's like a, a type in the sense yeah. that in the Old Covenant, if God sent his prophets to warn about judgment, and they refused to listen, that there would be bad consequences and so the implication is that under the new covenant Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king and so if you won't listen to somebody back then it's even worse if you won't listen when God sent his own son now Habakkuk is a very interesting book Dean I'm glad you're here we're going to call on you soon our Old Testament expert. Um, now, I remember preaching on it many years ago. Habakkuk's an interesting prophet because he was kind of complaining to God, sort of like Jonah, but not quite so seriously. And, he did, and so if I get it right, now Dana and Eric and whoever really knows Habakkuk can certainly correct me if I'm wrong. But he was complaining that God wasn't dealing with the wicked leadership in Israel. Is that right? Okay, so he's complaining, look at all these wicked people that are, that are running things around here. When are you going to do something about it? And so God's answer was, oh, I am going to do something about it. I'm going to sell the, send the Chaldeans to defeat you. And then Habakkuk got really upset because he said, well... I'm paraphrasing big time here. They're worse than we are. How can you do that? We're bad. They're worse. And you're going to send them to judge us? Is that the right take? Eric, go ahead and comment. Yeah, and so you're right. There's a near and a far. The near-term warning was about this judgment that was going to come. And Bob is right. In the far term, the judgment is warned about by Christ and his apostles. And so it reminds me of Hebrews, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If it was bad for them to reject the prophets that warned about the coming Chaldeans, how much worse is it to reject the son who warns about the wrath to come? And so there is, I think, a lesser to greater implicit Yeah, amen. Well, when I printed this out, I printed out the Greek of Acts here, the quotation, and the one from the Septuagint, and the words are exact, and the key words are exact. The word scoffers uh, in the Greek, um, kataphronetai, 
It can mean despisers or, you know, you know what a scoffer is? Nah, nah, I won't ever believe that. Go away. We don't want to hear this, right? Scoffing, making fun of. The same word, um, kataphronitis, was used in Habakkuk 1.5 in the Greek Old Testament that they often use, and then Acts here, 13.41. So they're scoffers. In the word marvel, exact same word, the same tense in everything. Okay? So you scoffers, you better marvel. Because God's going to do a work. Now the work in Habakkuk's day was sending the Chaldeans to judge Israel. Okay? The work here is a greater work. The work that God is doing in Habakkuk's day was a work of judgment by sending Chaldeans because of Israel's wicked leadership and refusal to listen to God's prophets. The work that Paul is talking about is the resurrection of Christ. So if you see the powerful irony and rebuke going on, okay, they wouldn't listen because they didn't like the idea of the Chaldeans coming, but God did it anyhow. Well, here God does a greater work in sending his own son, who is loving and kind and merciful, unlike the Chaldeans who were vicious enemies. And that was a work of judgment. Christ brings a work of salvation by dying for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God, and being raised from the dead. And so in order to bring forgiveness of sins, which we saw. So the lesser to greater is hugely profound. And um, the implication is that if judgment came in history during that time, how much greater judgment will come if you won't listen to Christ? And that's exactly what Paul's saying. So his prophetic warning is take heed. God, the work here has already been done because Paul just preached on it. And it's what Christ did in Israel, the four witnesses, in order to bring them to salvation. Now, the term scoffers uh, is also used in Isaiah. Now, uh, Mike Kaufman, could you look up Isaiah 28, 14 through 16? And we will get you uh, a mic. This, and everybody can turn to that, Isaiah 28, 14 to 16. We want to hear about scoffers. How many of you know there are still scoffers today? I think more than ever. Isaiah 28, 14 to 16. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you mockers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. For you said, we have cut a deal with death, and we have made an agreement with Sheol. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, it will not touch us, because we have made falsehood our refuge, 
and have hidden behind treachery. Therefore the, gods, therefore the Lord God said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. Right. That's, so there's a messianic prophet, prophecy. So the same term in the LXX, as we call it, so I got up here, which simply is Roman numerals for 70, the Septuagint, is used in Isaiah 28, 14. Hear the word of God, old scoffers or mockers, as you said. Now, again, it's a very similar thing going on. They wouldn't believe the prophets when they prophesied that judgment was going to come to Israel and that God would use pagans to bring the judgment because they wouldn't listen to him, right? And so Isaiah says to the scoffers, I'm going to do a great work. And uh, he mocks the unbelievers in Israel by telling them that this deal they made was made with falsehood and deception. Because on the surface, it'd be kind of dumb to make a deal with falsehood and deception. But that's what people do. Honestly, that's exactly what's going on in our day, if I may make an application. The religions and the religious ideas that are the most popular, at least here in America, and I think lots of other places, are grounded in utter and unabated deception. And the big deception that's deceiving the most people is the idea that there's no ultimate transcendent creator God who is non-contingent, who is above and beyond everything else, that he created the world out of nothing, that he providentially rules over all of history, and that he sent his son into this world, the very second person of the tree, the very creator, who lived a sinless life and died a substitutionary death on the cross and was raised on the third day and bodily sent it into heaven and promised he'd come again to bring judgment to those who won't listen to him and salvation to his own people. That idea is mocked. I know it is mocked. And frankly... The religious people, including those who call themselves Christians, mock the idea. They don't want to hear about it. Emergent doesn't want to hear about it. Seeker-sensitive, they say they believe it, but they wouldn't preach it in a million years. If they started preaching that Sunday after Sunday, 80% of their congregations would leave by the end of the month. Or they'd go get a different pastor. Because all the seekers would be offended. And so religion is this big, happy, kind of, aren't we happy? Isn't it good? Lilies and Easter bunnies. Yeah. And everything's nice and be a religious consumer. But if you preach this in a Jewish synagogue, saying to the people there, you're just like your fathers. Remember the Jewish idea of corporate solidarity. They wouldn't listen. 
And now you're not listening. And now it's even worse because God's son came. And he furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Dear ones, what else do we have to preach? If we don't preach the Christ of the Bible, the religious people will preach the Christ consciousness of the universe. So I'm just at the end of my research on this enneagram. And it's just wicked and horrible. The way you find Christ is through a multi-year process of finding the true self. And when you find the true self, you find God. There's no judgment. There's no idea of sin. There's no wrath of God against sin. There's no gospel. There's simply a journey of self-discovery. So if you're rich enough to send your kids to a private evangelical college, that's what you're sending them to hear. And your money is going up in smoke. And the kids are being turned into virtual, real, actually real pagans in the name of religion. And it's really, really sad. I'll soon, uh, I have to write that article, and it's going to be a little harder because now the fishing season is open. (laughs) But Eric's going to keep my nose to the grindstone. He's not going to let me get off. I do have to write. The research is done. I don't know why I'm popping. But anyhow, uh, it's so bad, it won't be hard to, to write about it. And it's amazing how if you don't listen to the Bible, you end up deceived. That's what happened in the Old Testament. That's what happened to a lot of people in Acts. Anybody who believes the Bible realizes that looking for the true self would be a really bad idea. (laughs) The true self is Adam in his rebellion and his spiritual death. We want the new self. It's interesting. I've got a sermon ready for next week. And one of the verses I studied was Paul talking about the new self. The new self is only realized when you die to the old self. And Neogram doesn't believe in, he believes that the old self is actually the true self. So wicked sinner is all you're ever going to be. Because they deny the fall, yes. You know, I was going to just mention in Isaiah 28, the passage we just read, it's interesting, all the way through Isaiah, the challenge for the people of Israel, are they going to believe in the Davidic promises or are they going to try to make an alliance with another nation? So, for example, in Isaiah 7, our famous passage that we have about the virgin birth, the, the challenge for Ahaz, the king of Israel, is he going to make an alliance with Assyria for protection against Syria or Aram, or is he going to trust that God will really bring about the Davidic promise? Well, here in Isaiah 28, you see the same thing. The covenant with Sheol that we just read was a covenant with Egypt. So now the king of Israel is tempted to trust in Egypt for protection against Assyria. But the promise is that there's going to be this stone that's laid in Zion. What is the stone? It's the Davidic promise. God gave promises that the Davidic king would always live. Why? Because Messiah comes from David. Well, now it's so apropos today because now we have the ultimate King David, the Messiah who's planted, and will we trust in him or are we going to trust in our works? Uh, and it reminded me, Bob, as you're talking about Bethel and, or Northwestern, one of the passages that these pagans use is Psalm 46.10 where it says, Be still and know that I am God. 
Oh, yeah. Well, what they're claiming is that the be stilling is stilling your mind. You still your contemplative practice. Exactly, a contemplative practice where you silence your mind, therefore you can hear from the spirit realm. But be still and know that I am God. Be still means stop striving, stop warring. Why? Because the battle belongs to God. Right. And he's the one who's going to fight on their behalf. Being still says don't go make a deal with Egypt. Exactly. Trust in the promises that he's made. Exactly right. 20, we're at, we're, Bob, we're at 20, yes. Go don't ahead. we see, we see uh, Eric, those, those same issues back then we see with the nation of Israel uh, today with, with the... Uh, with the uh, uh, administration that just won over there politically, now we see the 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 you know uh, giving land for peace and and that whole bit. And we see a lot of uh, other nations who get on board with that. But these are things that God warned against. So nothing's changed. Yes. Uh, by the way, Eric and I are doing a series on Bible prophecy. We're on the radio which a podcast, not on the airwaves, we're going through Matthew 24. And all I do is ask Eric questions, and he knows everything. But anyhow, it's very interesting that what you're talking about, Brian, Israel isn't going to quit thinking that way because they're wanting to make a deal with the enemies. Guess who the final deal is going to be with? Antichrist. They'll make a deal with the Antichrist in the middle of the 70th week. And then they'll realize they've been had because he'll set himself up as the object of worship. And they'll realize, oh, we can't worship you. And then it all, you know, that sets up the final yes. I uh, just want to let everybody know I have the uh, podcast uh, on Understanding Prophecy, six parts on the table this morning. Oh, we got it. Okay. Um, right, we've already recorded 16 of them, but I got to, unfortunately, different things happen, so we don't, we got to finish Matthew 24, and then, then you can have summer, Eric, right? We got to finish Matthew 24, but we really got to study Bible prophecy. So many people just don't want to do that, and the prophecy is important. It's in the Bible for a reason. Okay? And because these same things uh, happen over again. I've said many times in the last 40 years, the roots of prophecy are in history. And that's what Paul's doing right here. Look what happened in history. God told you through his prophet what he was going to do, and you didn't like it. And so you scoffed. And, And in Isaiah, God told you what not to do, and you just scoffed and made a covenant with death. And then in the future, it's going to happen again, and they'll make a covenant with the, the Antichrist, they'll make a covenant with the many. And we, we talk about this in our going through Matthew 24. But in the end, Israel's saved by direct intervention of Messiah at the very end of Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation period. And Let me just cite Tannehill, and we'll get to another slide here. The offer of forgiveness and justification is balanced by a prophetic warning, which ends the speech, says Tannehill. Justification is offered to everyone who believes, but in Habakkuk 1.5, the prophet addressed scoffers, it's a key word here, who will certainly not believe, 
God's work, if disclosed to them, as it says here in this verse. In the context, says Tannehill, of the preceding speech, this work may be understood as the fulfillment of messianic promise through Jesus' resurrection. In the context of what follows, it may be understood as the inclusion of the Gentiles in the eternal life of the messianic reign. Uh, Robert Tannehill, Narrative Unity of Luke X, Volume 2. So that was the same thing in Isaiah 28. Who's the tested cornerstone? Messiah. What did we learn in Ephesians? Who's built on that foundation of which Christ is the cornerstone? The one new man. Who's that? The building stones made up of Jews and Gentiles who are part of the promise. Not to neglect that there's a future promise for Israel as well. It's both and, not either or. Okay? So, and Eric and I talk about that at length in that podcast series that we're doing on Matthew 24. So the warning issued by the Apostle Paul, who himself was prophet according to an earlier verse in Acts 13, said, repent and believe in Christ or this will come on you. Take heed. And that's the gospel. Whatever happened to evangelicalism that you can't preach about judgment anymore? You can't preach about Bible prophecy. And you can't tell people they're lost. And you can't preach on the forgiveness of sins. And you, you can't let people feel bad that they might be sinners that need to repent. It's, it's very, very sad, isn't it? Yeah, that, I'm glad you brought up that be still and know that I'm God. It, uh, I, I really, as I said at the very end of my research on this Enneagram, which is nine points on a circle, oh, you wouldn't believe the convoluted mess that it is, but at, at the very end, they have three things and they prescribe these depending on which triangle you are within the nine-pointed circle. And everybody's something different, and so they get their own, but all three of them are the same thing. They are stillness, silence, and solitude. And the, the prescription for spiritual formation, which is their fake sanctification, is, depending on who you are, depending on what number you are, and what triangle that puts you in, you're either to practice stillness or to practice solitude or to practice silence, most of which are really the same thing. If you want silence, you're going to have to be in solitude. And if you're in solitude with silence, what are you doing besides being still? They're trying to turn everybody into a monk. It's interesting, Richard Rohr, who teaches all this, is a monk. And what an irony that they buy a college from the Roman Catholic monastery. I've done weddings there. We do baptisms there. They buy the college from the Catholics, and after so many decades, they bring the Catholics in to teach the evangelicals how to be Christians. The Catholics got it back. They just don't know it. What's going on? 
Where did the evangelical money go? What did all that brick and mortar buy? Millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars spent by people who wanted the Christian gospel be taught to their kids and is teaching them how to be monks and nuns. Who are the prophets that are going to stand up and say, no, this is wicked, don't do it? They aren't around, they're silent. Churches are full of seekers and contemplatives. Word of God not preached. And so we see here the same thing happening. And it's a heartbreaker, frankly. I thank God that I was able to go to Bible college when I was converted and be taught true Christian doctrine. But in God's providence, I was there at the right time. And then I got to go to seminary and was taught true Christian doctrine because I just was there at the right time. Eric got there too late. The heretics had already taken over. Oh, I got to show you some pictures. I got to try to keep up with Dina. We're going to see here. This is, let me read the caption. This may be where the whole city came to. This was there. Um, let me read the caption here. Um, it says there, the Temple of Augustus, Pisidian Antioch. Um, let me read this. Built sometime around A.D. 25, this temple was dedicated to Augustus, who was honored as the father of the city. Constructed in front of a two-story semi-circular portico and adjacent to a large colonnaded courtyard with 150 columns, this podium temple became the focal point of the city. A lot of scholars, and I read this in my commentary, we're going to get to this. When there was an uproar over what Paul preached in the synagogue, it says the whole city came out, probably not every single individual, but a huge crowd. This is, this is in that city. Most scholars think that's probably where they gathered to have their protest because a little Jewish synagogue would never hold the whole city. But all kinds of people could gather in that kind of a setting, and it was set there with that rock background so you could project out if you spoke. So there is a real place. Guess what? The Bible is not mythology. Now let me do one more, being how I spent some money, so I want to get some good out of it. This is the famous pilot stone that was discovered. The, the rationalists and the liberals used to say the Bible's false because there was no pilot. So the Bible says there was a pilot, but nobody could confirm it from another source. They assume the Bible's wrong because the Bible doesn't count as a source. To the liberals, right? Well, so they found this. And what's highlighted there is that name, Pilate. Let me again quote the, um, the timing of this dedicatory, dedicatory inscription of Pontius Pilate from Caesarea, A.D. 26 to 36. The limestone inscription above is a dedicatory inscription of Pontius Pilate, found at Caesarea 
Martima in 1961. Almost all of the Roman ruler's name, Pontius Pilate, is visible in the second line. This inscription was photographed at the Israeli Israel Museum. Um, now, this has been multiplied dozens and dozens of times over. Uh, the, the, the Qumran and archaeology in Asia Minor. And in any other arena, if the Bible is was proven factual again and again and again and again, one would say, well, if you want to know what happened, you'd consult the Bible first. Because it's an ancient document that's been proven true. But in academia, the prejudice is against anything Christian and against any Christian claim and against anything that we might be preaching. So the presumption is everything in the Bible is false until it's proven true by some external source. Well, the external sources are proving it true. When are we going to start believing it? Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And Dana showed us this one, and I found it on my thing. It showed how they crucified. Get the uh, microphone over to Dana, because he had a good description. Remember this one? About what we learned from it? Because you showed this at your class. Yes. Um, back in Genesis, when, when we first see this confrontation between the, the seed of the woman and, and Satan, and, and it talks about how, how Satan would bruise his heel. That's where this comes in. I think it was fulfilled quite literally in that the, the spike when he was crucified was driven through the side of his heel. Yeah, and they found this yes. a spike through the heel. Yeah, yeah. So they found an example of a crucified person where, where the spike was driven through the... And that's what this is. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Dana. Absolutely. He was teaching us that when he was in Genesis on Wednesday night. Let me cite this. Uh, inscription from my slide here. This heel bone pierced through with a nail is the only physical evidence that has been found for crucifixion. This, this here is a replica because there's just one. <coughs> was, <clears throat> was photographed at the Israel Museum. The original is not on display due, due to the Jewish belief that body parts Bodies or parts thereof should be buried immediately. It would offend them to see a body part, but it was photographed, so there it is. So, those are my slides for today. Now let's go to verses 42 and 43. And Paul and Barnabas were going out, as they were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. So the people who were immediately in the synagogue were giving a favorable response to the preaching of the apostles. You're up, Paul. <coughs> and now, it says, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, 
urging them to continue in the grace of God. So initially there's a response of repentance and faith amongst people in the synagogue. They believed, many of them did. And the people here would be a reference to the Jews and God-fearers that were mentioned in Acts 13, 16, and here in verse 43, some of whom believed what Paul preached. And so Dr. Peterson said it appears that devout converts are specifically mentioned with the Jews in verse 43 because Luke is stressing that many of the most orthodox members of the members of the congregation, were persuaded by Paul's argument at this stage. As converts to Judaism, the males may have been circumcised and their families undergone ceremonial cleansing. So that would have been the proselytes. Okay, so they were joined to the monotheism and moral qualities they saw in the law of Moses. That's what attracted proselytes. And they hear... Now some of them were believing the gospel. I would say this about that. We shouldn't presume to know in advance who's going to believe, frankly, because God does unexpected things. He's already said that. I'll do a work, though. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. Remember that in the prophets? God's going to do as he sees fit. Now Eric is talking about the, the solos of the Reformation, the Doctrines of Grace, in Sunday School, that discussion will be picked up again Sunday, next Sunday. But I would just say this, because we don't know the mind of God other than he'll save a remnant, he'll save people from all of the families of the earth, we need to be bold in the gospel and proclaim it to anyone and everyone because we don't know who God's going to save. Nobody would ever believe that God was going to save me, I'll tell you that. I told that story at my father-in-law's funeral about my own conversion. And uh, we don't know what God's going to do. And uh, whatever our theology is, we have to be people who believe in the universal call of the gospel. And that when we proclaim that universal call, we proclaim it accurately. Because if we say, because they, this Enneagram that I've researched, they have a Jesus and a Christ and a religion and a version of Christianity, but it's not the biblical one. But their version of the gospel is find your true self so that you can find Christ or God, no matter what religion you're in. But the real gospel says, that you're a dead sinner and Adam all die and that the wrath of God abides upon us if we don't listen to the gospel, but that God sent his son to take upon himself the wrath that we deserved. And that everyone who believes in Christ escapes from God's wrath and receives forgiveness of sins. I know that may sound redundant here. I'm glad it does. Thank God for that. Because they don't hear it. They don't know that. 
And we've got to preach it or not. You're going to hear it from a lot of places. We're not the only ones, but there should be every church you went to anywhere would, hear, would have that same message, but it's not true. So we're not discovering our true self. We're escaping from God's wrath against the old sinful Adam and becoming a new self. That's Paul's terminology, Ephesians 4. Renewed in the image of the one who created us. But so at this point, there's a favorable response, and they want to hear more. Can we do three slides in one day? Is that allowed? I'm going to try it. There it is. Acts 13, 44. Now this makes that that uh, slide I had about that big area that was in Pisidia and Antioch uh, applicable because probably where they would have had to gather with that big of a crowd. The next Sabbath, verse 44, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. So the people that were in that little synagogue service, Jewish people and Gentile converts to Judaism, went out begging that more would be taught to them, following Paul, and the word got around. This is the way it works in a clannish city. Everybody knows everything by word of mouth. And so then this created a big crowd to hear what Paul was preaching. This crowd would not have fit in the synagogue, so it was likely gathered outside. There was a large open space, which we saw in the slide, of the Tiberia Plataea by the Temple of Augustus. So they had a spot right there where they could have gathered a large crowd to hear. And so the crowd of Gentiles is interested, but many of the Jews will become what Paul calls jealous and turn against it. One of the big stumbling blocks that existed in the book of Acts, and it only intensifies as Luke's narrative goes on, is that God saved a lot of Gentiles. And traditionally, the Gentile nations were the ones who hated the Jews, persecuted the Jews, killed the Jews, subjugated the Jews, and were therefore enemies. And that God was saving them through the Jewish Messiah was an offense. Speak into the mic. We're not hearing you. Turn it on. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm looking for that the gospel is an offense. Am I even thinking of the right chapter? That was 16. Okay, go ahead and read it. I just did. 15? Oh, I didn't read. Is it 15? Well, which one says that the gospel is an offense to the Jews? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's it. Yes, there you go. Good. Okay, 
bring you, okay, we got our winner here of the free coffee. I see she's drinking water, though. We'll give Google credit on this one. Oh, Google helped us, all right. <laughs> For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Is that where you were going? First Corinthians one eighteen. That's a good passage. That may not be the right one, but says the same message. Look for the word offense. Somebody in there uh, in concordance, and I'll, I'll continue on while you're looking for that. I think you got the right one. I was in the wrong book. Stumbling block. Scandalon. That's the word I'm looking for. Stumbling block. Keep looking for that. I'll go to the next slide. So, because we're going to see it actually happen here. But when the Jews saw the crowds, okay, yes. Uh, I think it's uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty-four Or uh, 20, where did it go? Oh, 22, 23, 23. 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. Read it. But we preach Christ crucified to, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those then who the next, are... Then 24 says, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom go. of God. That's the verse I wanted. I apologize, Eric. I was sending you on a wild goose chase to the wrong book. Where we zeroed in, we found it. That's, I should have had that in my notes because it's a perfect cross-reference for Acts 13.45, because exactly what happened. So um, it's a scandalon in the Greek, and that word means stumbling block, and as we can see an echo of our word scandal in it, that the king who would come of the lineage of David, who they believed it rightly, but kind of the timing is different than they expected, would sit on the throne of David and conquer his enemies, came and was rejected and crucified under Pontius Pilate. So that's a scandal. What kind of messianic king goes through that? We've already had kings that were defeated by Gentiles in our history. We saw Habakkuk and Isaiah prophesying about such things, and we already had a captivity. So now we have a king who's crucified. So that is a scandalon, a stumbling block. And that the Gentiles would hear a message that says God is going to use a Jewish Messiah that was rejected by his own people and they wanted him crucified, that that's what we've got to believe to be saved, they think it's a laughing thing. It's foolish. How could you be so foolish to believe something like that? But what did it say? It said, but to those who are the called, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. That was in First Corinthians 1. Sorry that I didn't have that in my notes. I didn't think about it until right here, right now. Um, That hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. 
the message that we preach is still a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But notice it said to those who are the called. Let me do a little setup, hopefully to for Eric for next week. Okay. Well, we want to learn was a, one of the scandals that come about, at least in my years of ministry, is what is, is called between so-called Calvinism and Arminianism. So Eric's going to address that straight on. And this has caused all kinds of heart, heartache and division and whatever. But the issues arise from the Bible itself, so they're worthy to be addressed. Okay? And not just try to be partisan and say we're right because we are the ones who have the longest tradition. But look at that word there. We're in 1 Corinthians 1, I believe 22, is that where we are? 23? Where does it say called? Okay, go ahead and comment on it, Eric. Yeah, so here it's, uh, it says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the called here... We always, Bob has talked a lot about over the years two different callings, and he's right. right. There's a universal calling, the, that, the, or the outer call, or the outer call. Sometimes it's, it's the same to. idea, exactly. But this is what's referred to as the effectual call. Yeah, the inner call. So, the inner call. So this is the call where God brings in His elect. So the point that He's making is yes, the message has been proclaimed, but the vast majority of Jews and Gentiles considered either a stumbling block or foolishness. But to the elect, those that God regenerates, remember last week, he would circumcise their hearts. Those that God circumcises, those that are called, those who are his chosen, that he's predestined before the foundation of the world, as it said in Ephesians 1, those are the called, Jews and Greeks. Now it's the power and wisdom of God. They understand the power of the cross and the necessity of the cross and messianic salvation. Yeah, now there are phrases like, as many as the Lord shall call to himself. In fact, you're coming to an important passage in Acts 13, 48, where it says, um, and as many as were appointed to eternal life to eternal believed. life believed. How many believed? Was it everyone that was asked? Everyone that was commanded? No, it was those who were appointed to eternal right. life believed. That's Acts 13, 48. So you'll see that in three verses. So just what you know, what I've done over, been in the ministry for a long, long time, for many decades, this is the point where there can be unity. Can we agree that the universal call must be proclaimed to all people? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. In other words, the mental acts of the preacher won't affect the outcome if he gets the message right. How do we know that? Well, because of Jonah. If it only went by what's going on in Jonah's mind, no Ninevites would be saved because he wanted them all damned. God, you don't have my permission to save Ninevites. Then after God did it, he said, I knew this was going to happen. Remember, he was sitting there under this vine and the vine dies. And the Lord says, well, you're sad about a vine. What's wrong with your priorities? So let's say the Calvinist preacher believes that only the elect will be saved, which I think is pretty clear he is, but it's not a hyper-Calvinist. Hyper-Calvinists don't preach the gospel. They wait to see if signs of election show up. 
And so you're baptized as a baby and you're part of the church, but we'll wait and see if election shows up. Where, as the Armenian will say, no, it's free will choice. And the original idea was just preach Christ and tell people why they should choose Christ. But what's gone astray in both cases is the seeker movement is a direct result of Arminianism in the church. If you can make Christ seem more appealing, you might be able to get somebody to raise their hand, sign a card, say a prayer, or do something that would be Christian. Because you're going to have a better life, you're going to be happier, you'll be successful, you'll get wealthy, you'll be healthy. And so all this stuff has come along. And the Calvinists can just go into their creedalism and pretend they're the new Israel and then put up all the same boundaries that exist under the old covenant and sit in their little enclave to see if signs of election show up. So we got two bad outcomes going on. So I've, I've debated this publicly, and I'm pleading with all preachers, preach Christ with clarity accuracy and authority, calling all men everywhere to repent, meaning all human beings, anthropos, and God will save whoever is going to be saved. And your mental acts won't change that. And if the Armenian says, oh, they made a choice, well, I guess they did after they, everybody who's regenerate was more than happy to choose Christ. Okay. And the Calvinists will say, well, they were elect from the foundation of the world, which they are. But we don't know the mind of God. We're not his counselor, and we don't have universal omniscience. So let's just preach the truth on the scene of history, and some will be saved and some will blaspheme. And that's going to go on. Now, here's another one, though, I want to say, just my input to what Eric's going to talk about. Some people have said, no, you shouldn't even talk about election at all. You shouldn't even address it because people haven't been able to agree on that ever, so don't bring it up. It's divisive. Now, my answer to that is, well, if it was one of the secret things, in other words, whether anybody is God's elect, if it's not revealed in the Bible, you're right, then we can't know. What's not revealed is who, looking into the future, is the elect. But that there is an elect is revealed. So you can't say, Pastor, you can't preach on a Bible doctrine because it divides people. Let me remind you that the gospel divides people. Okay? You can't tell me I can't preach on it when it's in the Bible. Prove to me it's not in the Bible. Well, you can't. My daughter was saying on Facebook, because Eric and I did some stuff, so it started a debate. Well, you can't teach election. It's only found 19 times in the Bible, in the New Testament. <laughs> 19 is not enough? Well, then how about free will? It's found zero. So we got a problem there. All right, let's get back to our text. Okay, Eric, now I teed it up for you for next week. Okay. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were full of jealousy. What's... Does anybody want to comment on what caused the jealousy? That God saved people they don't like, right? Isn't it the Jonah sort of thing? 
and they begin contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Now, that's an interesting word. Jealousy is zealous. We could get our term zeal or a zealot. Um, and it was used in Acts 5.17 in a similar context. Let me read that. The high priest rose up along with his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, zealous. Why? Because God was using somebody they didn't like, Jesus Christ was raised and ascended, and his preachers to save people. And it was detracting from their political power. Now, the blasphemy is an interesting term because Paul called himself a blasphemer before he knew Christ and was an enemy. He later referred to that as blasphemy. That's in Acts 26.11. Acts 26.11, I'll read it to you. Paul speaking before a Roman official. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, pursuing them to foreign cities. Paul was trying to force Christians to blaspheme. Now, what does he mean? Like blasphemy, by the way, would be a capital offense. You can't be a blasphemer in Israel. And the implication is that if you deny Christ, you're a blasphemer. The implication is Christ is God. When you blaspheme Christ, you're blaspheming God. And Paul wanted, remember if you go back and read, he was breathing out threats of slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He said about himself, I was trying to force them to blaspheme. He wanted to force believers to deny Christ. If they did, they'd be blasphemers. So that's what's going on here. They were blaspheming by their what they were saying about Christ. That comes up in Matthew, comes up in Hebrews. People often email and ask about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But blasphemy is very, very wicked. So some people reject Christ and blaspheme, and they were like Saul of Tarsus before his conversion, who was pursuing Christians, trying to force them to blaspheme. Yes, Nancy. Uh, Just earlier this morning, Linda and uh, Judy and I were just talking about the fact that intellectually, there are so many friends of ours that profess to be Christian, and intellectually, they, they're convinced of the truth of the gospel, but they're just, they fall short of the saving grace. They fall short of the knowledge of, of Christ alone. Yeah. And it's really difficult to see our friends and family falling into that trap. Yeah. See, the thing that's unique now that wasn't true when Paul was in the synagogue in city in Antioch, we have Christendom. So there's whole big segments of society that are called Christian, but if they actually hear the gospel, it makes them very angry. Or at least to back away and don't really want to be our friends or to listen to us. So that's 
a sad development. We've run out of time.